And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the show this morning. Of course, the the question of the day is, what does the Rolling Stones, AMC, and the Delta variant all have in common? They just won't die. I mean, this is, this is really down to the point of it right now. Can you believe, how old, how old is Mick Jagger now? Oh, he's got to be... 180? 80-something, yeah. Oh, it's 180 at this point. At least. Well, just, it looks that way. It just goes to show you what a good pharmaceutical <laughs> lifestyle can do for you. <laughs> you, too, can live forever. <laughs> That's right. If there was ever an example of a living zombie. That's the guy. That's the band. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, Rolling Stones actually going back out on tour. It just, yeah. You know, it just goes to show you really what's interesting is, mm-hmm. and this I've talked about this on the show before about my kids is that, you know, you know when I was growing up, my you know we were listening to Van Halen and you know Rock and Roll Boston and these type of groups, and my dad was like, "That's not music. You gotta listen to Waylon Jennings. That's real music." <laughs> And it's interesting now, you know, you listen to a lot of music today and, and I'm, a, I'm like, I've become my dad, right? Like, that's not music you got to listen to. But no, my kids all listen to ACDC, the Rolling Stones. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, that music has really transcended generations much more than I thought it would have. Well, so, the lyrics have held up a lot better. Yes, that is true. Highway to Hell never goes out of style. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it doesn't help when all your when all your music, you know, shoot to thrill, highway to hell, mm-hmm. back and back, kind of all get imported into Marvel movies. So that that kind of well, helps. there's that that does help a good bit. So. And then there's the subtle reminder in the grocery store music system. <laughs> now you know you're getting older though when you get into an elevator. They have the elevator music, and it's a rendition. It's some guy on a pan flute doing highway to hell. <laughs> so and you know the words. And you know the words exactly. <laughs> anyway. Lots of stuff to get into this morning. Uh, speaking of variants, um, in September, it was either August or September uh, here on the show, going back in, in our way, way back machine of 2020, uh, as we were starting to really fast track all these uh, vaccines for trying to fight the COVID virus at that point. Uh, we said here on the show that the problem with fast tracking vaccines at this early stage of a virus is that well, viruses have a very nasty habit of mutating and becoming really, uh, um, you know, where the virus, where the vaccines don't have any effect on the virus itself. And now, even Dr. Fauci out yesterday talking about the new lambda variant of this virus is now vaccine resistant. So. You know, this is going to become uh, much more problematic here as we continue to go forward. We're seeing cases of the Delta variant rising at this point uh, at a very fast pace. And this has gotten uh, quite a bit of attention uh, between the White House and even the state of Florida. Governor DeSantis yesterday basically pushing back against the Biden administration, saying, no, we're not shutting down schools or businesses and we're not requiring masks, etc. We're getting our economy back going again. And this is really going to become a big challenge economically. Uh, as we go forward here, because again, after having shut down the economy, business owners realize the damage that that does to their business and to the economy over the sake of a virus. And yes, while the virus is certainly a, a vicious thing at this point, um, a lack of a lack of a job 
um, tends to be much more devastating to a lot of family members. So, you know, people are really having to make this very tough decision between masking and shutting down the economy and all this versus working and being productive in an economy. And now you've got a, a particular strain of the virus, this Lambda variant now coming up, that may be much more vaccine resistant. So here we go again. This is, this is going to be problematic. Now, as we talk about this, and, and again, we look back, you know, we've had the, we've had the flu for, you know, every year, um, as long as I've been alive and longer than that. And we have multiple, you know, you, every year you go down, you get your flu shot. That covers about five versions of the flu. There's about 150 different variants of the flu. And so even if you get the flu shot, you may still get sick, right? And we don't shut down the economy because of, of the flu. This is something we're going to have to learn to live with as we go forward and, and something we're going to have to learn to, uh, you know, adopt and work with as we go forward because we've got to keep the economy going. And this is the thing that this is going to become the big challenge here, you know, using artificial stimulus, monetary policy, etc., to try to create artificial growth will work temporarily. And as we saw, it did work. We got economic growth last year, and, and because of basically we spent 20% of the economy in artificial debt-driven stimulus. So we got some growth out of the economy. The problem is you can't sustain that indefinitely. And so if you keep going through periods of shutting down activity or deterring people from going out into the world and doing things, that's going to make it more difficult to keep economic growth going. And this is why we're starting to already see potentially the, the after effect of all that stimulus is that stimulus works its way through the system now. Economic growth is beginning to slow much faster than previously anticipated. So that's going to be one of the big challenges here is how do we balance out the, the caution against the virus and, and, and how do we mandate our lives so that we continue to create economic growth. Now here's the interesting by part of this, our, our sideline of this. So last night, it's getting that time of the year that we, have, we start scheduling our Christmas vacation. And so every year we, we take our kids either skiing or the beach or something uh, for a vacation break, right? And this is kind of just our annual family event. Everything is booked. Uh, kids want to go to the beach this year. And so we started looking at resorts around, you know, different parts of the world. Everything is completely sold out already. Now, not, I told my wife, look, that is not surprising. Everybody's been locked up for a year. <laughs> they want to get out. And, and now that things are opening back up, travel-wise, et cetera, you can get on a plane, you can go places and go to resorts. Everything is booked up. It's going to be virtually impossible to try to book anything at this point um, at you know, more of your high-profile places, right? So it, it, this is going to be um, a, a, a very serious issue going forward. If we start trying to lock down travel again, restrict travel, uh, you're going to start getting a lot of pushback from, from your citizens. Right? So this is, so this is going to be the real challenge. But again, this is not surprising. This is something we talked about in August, September, right here on the show. We never get credit for what we say, but <laughs> we told you. It's like, hey, we told you so. This is going to happen. And look, that's just the way viruses work. They're very nasty little creatures. And when you throw up a barrier in front of them, they tend to figure a way around them. And, and so vaccines are great until the point that they mutate to the point that the vaccines don't work anymore. Now what are you going to do? So there you go. A uh, couple other things in the markets this morning. Of course, we've got to get to uh, Michael Leibowitz. He'll be joining us here in a few minutes. Talk about uh, the Fed a little bit here as we get ready for Jackson Hole coming up. Both Richard Kaplan and Clarita 
Two Fed members have already come out and said, hey, you know what, we're going to have to start tapering and hiking rates much sooner than expected as early as 2022, right? That's just next year. So again, that's not really what the market was expecting to hear. And yesterday, the market did sell off here just a smidge. I mean, it wasn't much. And this is the important thing about this. The markets remain confined here, really, in this upper range right here at, at all-time highs, not really making any progress here over the last several trading days, just kind of really back and forth. Um, this buy signal that we have in place really kind of supported that advance. We said at that point, because that, you know, we've already had this big advance in the market this year, there wasn't a lot of upside, continues to be the case here. Uh, but we are starting to kind of work off that buy signal and starting to, to narrow that signal to the point that we may start actually seeing this uh, if we don't get some activity in the markets here pretty quick. Um, we're potentially going to start to see this market go into a correction process over the next couple of weeks. So just really kind of paying attention to that. But here's the important part about this. Kaplan yesterday said, hey, we may have to hike rates sooner than expected. And the markets did not sell off. Did that give them confidence to go ahead and taper at the end of the month? We'll talk about it with Mike coming up next. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. And welcome back to this morning. That's what happens when Baby Shark grows up. <laughs> Jaws. Baby shot. <laughs> Good mix this morning, Mr. Clanton. <laughs> Brent's working on his DJ skills. Apparently, there's a wedding coming up. <laughs> so, or a bar mitzvah. Yeah, one of the two. One of the two. <laughs> uh, Michael Leewitz joining us this morning as well. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Good awesome. to be back in my basement studio. <laughs> yeah, after a week on vacation. But you're nice and tan. This is a good thing. I right. got that going for me. Exactly. Uh, okay, a couple of things here this morning. Um, let's start with uh, something that just crossed CNBC here just a minute ago as we were getting ready to start the show. Uh, Steve uh, Leisman, the, econom the economics expert, if you want to call him that, uh, for, for CNBC. Yeah, uh, big, big hashtag marks there. Um, you know, for CNBC was just talking about that the Fed really has their priorities misplaced at this point that, you know, really they shouldn't be looking at employment. Really, inflation is the thing they should be looking at. And it's this idea that inflation is potentially a much more a much bigger problem than what the Fed thinks. Uh, the, the Fed thinks that inflation is primarily transient. But there are some things in the economy that are coming along that may not be as transient. Uh, you know, you and I have both done work on C on the CPI index in particular and, and talking about inflation. You know, a very large chunk of the CPI index, about a quarter of it, is homeowners equivalent rent. And rents are rising because of what's been happening in the housing market. People can't afford to buy houses. They're moving back in. You know, they're, they're starting to rent apartments. Those rents are coming up. And so we're, you know, that part of the inflation measure is likely going to be a lot stickier than what the Fed may think. So, so there's, there's 
multiple measures of inflation, right? Mm -hmm. And first of all, I would argue none of them are right because it's impossible to calculate. But there's CPI. And like you said, CPI, I think it's 30 percent is, you know, housing or rent inflation. And, you know, in my article last week, you know, I showed that there is no correlation between the CPI's measure Mm -hmm. of what they call shelter and reality and what's really happening. (laughs) And if you go back and look at the period before 2008, their measure of housing inflation was a relatively straight line. You know, I forgot the number called one, you know, growing at one and a half percent a year while home prices were increasing pretty rapidly, you know, 2004, five, six, seven into seven. Um, And you look at it again and again, we have a straight line in CPI, the shelter component and prices are skyrocketing. So I agree that real inflation, the inflation we pay out of our pockets is is has a potential to be a real problem but the cpi inflation that they report is you know it's a it's a coin toss because they don't calculate it correctly right 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 they 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 do they fool around with these numbers to the point that that they don't rec- that they don't mimic what we pay out of our pocket Right. So, well, and, and let me so what's you. the problem is the question. Yeah, is there so, real inflation or is CPI inflation the real number? Right. Well, let's, uh, first of all, let's just for everybody's edification, I guess, let's go back to 1997, 1998. Uh, Bill Clinton called in the Boskin Commission to evaluate CPI. And the reason was at that point, you know, everybody wants to everybody credits Bill Clinton with balancing the budget. Right. We had a surplus for about 27 minutes. Uh, in the U.S. economy during the Clinton administration, but that was because he borrowed two, basically $2 trillion from Social Security, moved it over to the budget, replaced it with IOUs, and this balanced our budget momentarily. And do what you got to do. And, and everything <laughs> was great. But the problem was is that it was the COLA adjustment on Social Security that was going to be problematic, right? If inflation, inflation keeps going up, they've got to pay more out in COLA. This became a bigger drag on Social Security payments. And so the Boston Commission was brought in to reevaluate. And that's how we came up with this whole kind of we used to calculate CPI in a basket of goods. You know, uh, here's the basket of goods. What was the price last year? What's the price this year? That's inflation. Um, We rejiggered that calculation by doing things like homeowners equivalent rent rather than home prices, which we used to basically base it on home prices. And that would have captured a lot of these increases in 2007. And now we had 19 percent, you know, price increase last month in housing prices, the homeowner's equivalent rent stripped that out. And then we started doing these hedonic adjustments uh, as well, saying, well, if you bought a computer in in 2000, today, if you pay the same price for it, it's a lot more powerful and has a lot more memory, et cetera. So it actually costs you less. So that's deflationary in the economy. So we, we made all these adjustments to suppress Social Security. Now, the, uh, our, our inflation, so we could suppress the Social Security payments. And the whole po- the whole problem with this, of course, is that as soon as you start mathematically adjusting anything to derive an outcome, it's no longer a good measure of what it is that you were trying to measure to start with. Right, right. It, it completely doesn't capture what we pay. Mm-hmm. And it, look, the, the number today, because I just did the work on this about a week ago, it's 30%, give or take a percent of CPI is related to shelter. 23% is what they call owner's equivalent rent, 
which is where they look at home prices and they try they try to compute what a proper rent would be and that's their measure of home prices and then seven percent is actual rent right let's just forget the 23 percent because that formula is beyond <laughs> rationality it doesn't make a lot of sense just use home prices you have exactly. them right rent is skyrocketing in most places it is going up double digits but their measure of rent was up something like 1.5% or 2.3% last month, while all other measures are up 10 plus percent on an annualized basis. So they're just not capturing it. And I, you know, how they do it, I don't know. And, and it's not, I'm not saying that they're trying to purposely hide it today, but all they're fooling around for the last 20 plus years, all these hedonics, like you mentioned, mm -hmm changing the way they calculated, changing contributions, has made it to the point where it's not capturing inflation. So what does the Fed do? The Fed's goal is price stability, right? Mm -hmm. The Fed's goal isn't inflation like they say it is. Right, it's right? price the stability. The Fed would make you believe that 2% inflation is their goal, and they call that price stability, mm -hmm. right? To me, that means prices are going up 2% a year, and in five years, prices have risen by 10%. That doesn't seem like stable pricing. <laughs> Right. But right. regardless, 2%. So the Fed has a lot more flexibility to to print money, to do what they want to do when inflation is artificially low because we can't they can't meet their target. But I guess I guess and let's go back to Steve Leisman's point. I, you know, he says the Fed's priorities are misplaced because they're focusing on, quote unquote, full employment right. uh, versus inflation. But again, and when we look at the labor you know, component of this, right? We're talking about full employment. Yes, we can get U3 employment, you know, down to sub 5%. We were at 3% uh, during the Trump administration. So, you know, we can certainly get a lot lower, but that doesn't really, even that number doesn't accurately represent what's happening in employment when you have a, you know, a 50%, 60% labor force participation rate. 50% of your 25 to 54 year olds, your prime working age group in the economy are, are not in labor, right? I mean, right. you know, we're not, none of these measures that the Fed is enacting monetary policy on and doing $120 billion a month accurately reflect what's happening within the real economy. And so this leads to bigger d disparities between the working class and the rich because again as we showed numerous times all this liquidity goes into the financial markets which accelerates the wealth of the top 10 percent the bottom 80 percent have very little ownership in the markets and they continue to get priced out of the economy in terms of what they're actually paying in terms of their cost of living versus their wages which aren't going up all right lance we had a great discussion yesterday afternoon mm -hmm. And we were talking about this and we were talking about the employment component and what the Fed should be looking at. Right now, the Fed's saying, well, there's still about six million jobs that we lost since January of 2020. The unemployment rates, I don't know the exact number, but six percent, it was in the lower threes. Mm -hmm. That's that's the gap we have to fill. And at first blush, that makes sense. Right. Th those are jobs. But when you dig a little bit deeper, you realize that the amount of jobs a lot of jobs, a lot of the number of jobs that companies are looking to hire people for mm -hmm. close that gap 100 percent. So what is the Fed's job? Is the Fed's job to get the unemployment rate to 3 percent or is the Fed's job to do what they can do? And I would argue they can't. But anyway, is it to do what they can do to make sure there's enough jobs available? 
because if all those jobs available got filled, we'd have lower unemployment today than we did mm -hmm. two years ago. So so what can the Fed do? Companies want to hire. Right. How how valid that is, whether companies are just posting stuff to to have a constant stream of resumes coming through so that they can collect resumes or restaurants that are always hiring because people are always quitting. We don't know. But the Fed should be looking at that number of the job availability and saying that's valid. We've closed the gap. If people want jobs, take them. That's great. If they don't, they don't. Right. But that's not our problem anymore. I know. I think that's a valid point, right? I mean, you you know, the Fed's job is to ensure that you know interest rates don't get get away from you, right? And there's and we have very stable interest rates right now. They've been trapped between one and two percent forever, um, you know, and those aren't going anywhere. So really, if if there was a measure of has the Fed and and you know achieved their goals. And you're exactly right at this. You know, are there plenty of jobs in the economy for people to get? Yes. Are interest rates low? Yes. I've done my job. So monetary policy shuts down and we'll see you next time there's a crisis. But we're not doing that. But it's interesting. And I, I mentioned this just before in the first segment, both Clarita and Kaplan have both come out talking about, well, the Fed may need to hike rates and taper sooner than expected. Market's not really paying attention to that. Does that give them the green light to do that? It's coming up as soon as Jackson Hole. We'll talk about that with Michael Lee. What's coming up next? Don't go away. Listening to the Real Investment Show. Come shake your body, baby, do the conga. No, you can't control yourself any longer. Come shake your body, baby, do the conga. No, you can't control yourself any longer. And welcome back to the show this morning. Michael Lee was joining me as well, talking a little bit about the Federal Reserve. Of course, the big issue coming up here in the next couple of weeks, of course, is Jackson Hole. And the way the Fed always works, we've talked about this before on the show numerous times, is the the you know, it is, it is ultimately Chairman Powell that drives the ship. But what they do prior to meetings and prior to potentially policy changes is they kind of trot out their few of their more minor Fed members and have them make statements out to the to the public press. And these are kind of like little trial balloons to see how the markets react, see how the economy reacts, et cetera, to uh, these statements. And and interestingly enough, there's been a little bit more talk here recently about potentially needing to taper, you know, monetary policy, you know, to, which would be uh, to start with reducing the amount of QE, uh, this $120 billion a month that we're, we're injecting into the financial system. And then the next step would be actually hike interest rates. And of course, the last time we tried to hike interest rates was back in 2018 that promptly led to about a 20% sell-off in the markets and, uh, and an immediate reversal under pressure from uh, the administration uh, to get interest rates back towards zero, stop hiking rates, and, and get the markets back on track. So, you know, presidents have learned that their entire presidency is now dictated. Their approval rating is really dictated more by the stock market than it is by anything else. The stock market is believed by the average American that if the stock market's up, the economy must be doing well. 
not really anything to do with each other at all, because if that was the case, the market wouldn't be priced at two and a half times the economy. Um, so, but that's become the belief. And now this has become a baseline for the president to ensure his presidency and his approval ratings by making sure he has a high stock market. So lots of pressure on the Fed to keep juicing the markets. But again, uh, this becomes problematic. Somebody inherits you know, eventually the bucket <laughs> and, right. you know, and this is not going to be good for whatever president that is. So, you know, if I'm a president, I want to be in there for four years and I'm out. Um, so, but here's the point here. So last couple of weeks, and it's been interesting. There was an article in Bloomberg, uh, about two weeks ago, um, Cap Richard Kaplan coming out, talking about the fact that maybe needing a hype rate sooner than later, Clarita out yesterday, CNBC, saying exactly the same thing. May need to hike rates as soon as 2022. And, of course, before you get to hiking rates, that means you're tapering the balance sheet. The market didn't really react much to that yesterday. Sold off a little bit. We were down, you know, half a point yesterday. Very stable. No big, no big panic in the markets. And these kind of trial balloons are really kind of giving the Fed a lot more confidence that, hey, if we taper – Markets are probably going to take it in stride at this point. I think they're mistaken. I think the market is call, trying to call their bluff at this point, saying, I don't think you're going to taper. But I think the Fed may be taking this as a sign that they can go ahead and start talking, at least talking more seriously about tapering their balance sheet in the coming months than not. And they think the market's going to hold up. Right. And if you notice over the last few months, they've ratcheted up the type of discussion about tapering QE. Mm -hmm. They're going to taper QE before they raise rates. And I think the most powerful speech was Christopher Waller, I believe it was Monday, who said, if we get two more strong uh, employment numbers, one comes out tomorrow and one comes out a month, uh, first Friday in September, mm -hmm. uh, we should be tapering and we should be tapering really quickly so that we're done by early 22. So he laid out a timeline, you know, and he's talking about possibly September, October beginning taper. And the other, you know, there have been Bullard, too. You didn't mention him. He's another no. one that's been very vocal about we need to taper, we need to raise rates so that we have more ammunition for the next recession to fight inflation for whatever it may be. So there's in increasingly more Fed members are getting more vocal and more uh, pointed about what the Fed should do and when they should do it. Powell is the only one that kind of sticks to his guns. And, you know, it's we'll see. Let's wait. We got time. No need to rush. But, uh, you know, like you said, I think it's all a game. Mm -hmm. And what they're trying to do is condition the market. If you say tape that we're going to taper enough, taper this, taper that, blah, 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 taper, taper, taper. And you do it for months on end. They think the market becomes immune to it. And it's just the way things are. And when they actually do say we're going to start tapering 10 billion a month or whatever the number is. Mm -hmm. The market will say, yeah, we knew that was coming. We've known that for months. Right. And in other words, the market prices it in. The market prices it in. They think. Yeah. They think. <laughs> now, what we've seen is the market has really gone sideways. Right. For the last month, the market has been in a very defined 50. The S&P has been in a 50 point range up and down. It goes to the bottom. It goes to the top. It goes to the bottom. Right. Mm -hmm. The market is not ready for taper. You know, we've said this a million times. And the reason we have to dwell on the Fed so much and not not other things that should be more important is because that is what's driving the market. That is the underlying basis for where stock prices are, for where bond prices are, for where 
currencies are, where gold is, where commodities are. I mean, it's the basis for everything these days. So unfortunately, we have to dig into all these little comments and wait, which verb did he use? Which adjective? How did he describe that? Did he just say two employments? Right. So now there's a timeline. Now the market is thinking, let's look at this Friday at tomorrow's employment report. Right. So tomorrow they're going to announce the employment report. And if there's about six or seven hundred thousand new jobs in aggregate mm -hmm. or more, they're going to say, OK, well, we're halfway to Waller's goal. If we get the same thing next month, they're going to start tapering. And look, so and, then and, and, and look, I think that's a real possibility. I mean, there's some estimates out there. We could see a million jobs tomorrow. Now, ADP right. was a little bit report, a uh, little bit weak, but there's not been a lot of correlation as of late between ADP and the BLS employment report. But I, look, I, I think there could be some very strong job reports over the next two months because all these people that are now coming off of unemployment benefits, right. you know, now they've got to go get a job. So again, and, and record job openings. So plenty of jobs, plenty of people off the rolls. I mean, we could see three, four, five million people starting to come back into the, the workforce over the next several months. That's going to be some really strong employment that's going to really start to push the Fed to taper, if, if not now, soon. And again, even CPI using their their mm -hmm. funny math yeah. is very high. It's very concerning where it's at. Even if you believe it's transitory, the Fed's under a lot of pressure. Now, now you mentioned this earlier. I thought that was a great point that Biden doesn't want the Fed to do anything. He wants he wants to retain the House and Senate mm -hmm. in a year or so, and he wants to get reelected in two or three years, whenever the next election is. So him, like every other president has done, is going to pressure Powell, right? But the interesting thing is Powell's term comes up, I believe it's this February or March. Mm -hmm. yep. So Powell or Biden has a lot of leverage over Powell. And if you've noticed, there have been a lot of articles that are kind of saying Brainerd or Powell, right? Those articles don't come out of thin air. Those right. are leaked to the press, right? They'll say, well, Brainerd has all these, Leo Brainerd has all these traits, and this is, they've been pointing to her regulatory prowess. Yeah. This is why she would make a better Fed chairman, and she's equally dovish, Chairman Powell. And they go back and forth. Right. And I think a lot of that is just leverage and sort of an indirect threat. Right. Yeah, and, and no doubt about that. And again, it's, it's going to be you know, very difficult. I think, I think this is going to become increasingly difficult on you know, the Fed, whoever the chairman is. That ultimately, you know, as the wealth gap continues to widen, you know, to, to larger and larger degrees, you know, we were talking this time last year, we were talking about the fact that the top 10% of, of income earners owned 86% of the stock market. Now they own 90% of the stock market, you know, in another couple of years, they'll own 95% of the stock market. Um, you know, it's going to be more and more difficult to try to support that inequality shift through monetary policy and and you know they're talking about now if you notice the fed is, has started talking about things like climate change you know now now they're involved in climate change uh but their real problem is wealth inequality and they're the direct cause of it but they're not talking about that yet but i, I don't see how they get too much further down the road without having to start seriously addressing you know potentially that issue and the effect that their monetary policy has on it Right. And, and it's been more and more common. We talked about it a couple of mm -hmm. weeks ago from that PBS Frontline uh, interview, set of interviews, which was outstanding. Right. And I think it's becoming more and more 
better known by the media that what the Fed is doing is creating these problems. Mm -hmm. So the question is, when does the public real the the public has no idea what the Fed is and what the Fed does. But at some point, I think the public starts to realize what's going on, because at the end of the day, if you want to redistribute wealth, tax tax the high income earners 80 percent and give money to the poor people. That's one way you're really going to distribute wealth. Right. I'm not saying that's what you should do, but <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's how, that's you, how you do it. Right. Wealth. Yeah. What the Fed's doing the, by funding these deficits with printed money, you're doing the opposite. Right. So, so there's a lot of levers government can pull and the Fed can pull. And I'm not advocating either one. I think they're both crappy ideas. <laughs> but but what the Fed's doing is redistributing wealth to the wealthy. Right. It's, Robin, it's basically Robin. It's right. It's Robin Hood in reverse. Uh, when we come back from the break, I got an email uh, question this morning. Actually, you did, too. Uh, we both got an email question this morning. And it's very rare that I get an email question that I can't answer. And this was one that really stumped me this morning. And we'll talk about that email when we come back from the break what the email question was and why it and why now and particularly now was it so hard to answer talk about that we'll come back from the break don't go away Listening to the Real Investment Show. And welcome back to this morning. Michael Leewitz joining me and uh, talking about this morning the impossible email. Um, got an email this morning. Now, you know, this was this was a very genuine email. Um, a client of ours, their son, emailed Mike and I and and asked, what books should I read? I really want to learn how to invest in stocks the right way. I don't want to gamble. And great question, right? And so I, 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 I was about to start to respond to it and just list off the normal kind of chain of books that I typically recommend to people. And, and before I even started typing the first name, the name of the first book, I was like, this is stupid. Um, none of these books are going to help this individual invest in stocks in this market environment. And I started trying to think in my head, okay, what books would I recommend to somebody to read given the current market environment that we're in today? Because here's the problem with this. If I tell you to read a book on fundamental analysis, Ben Graham's security analysis, that's the Bible of investing, right? If you're going to read a book, that's the book you read. It tells you everything you need to know about investing. But it doesn't apply today because fundamentals don't matter. Mike and I have this conversation. Just had this conversation yesterday. We're in a market where fundamentals absolutely do not matter. I just wrote an article last week talking about how 14% of the S&P stocks 
trade at more than 10 times price to sales. And that's a record, right? Uh, price to sales ratios on the entire S&P is near three times price to sales, highest level ever on record, period, end of story. So what good does it do to read the the encyclopedia of investing of Ben Graham security analysis in this type of market where securities analysis really doesn't matter. You buy stocks with the least quality fundamentals, they go up. You buy a stock, CVS as an example, great fundamental company, great fundamental story, stock reports, fantastic earnings, ups their outlook for the year, stock sells off 4%, right? So as soon as that happens, an investor goes, well, fundamental stuff doesn't work, right? I'm going to go buy Robinhood and make 100% of my money in a day. Right. So it's an impossible question. How do you honestly answer this email? Because if you recommend, hey, read this book on fundamental investing in the first in his first venture out in the market, he buys a fundamental stock and it and it drops 30%. And he's watching all his friends trade Robinhood and make 100%. How long do you think he's going to stick to fundamentals? So, so that's it's really interesting, because I did reply, and mm-hmm. I didn't put as much thought into it as you. And I gave him a Benjamin Graham book and a technical book. I said, here's a fundamental book. Here's a technical mm-hmm. book. They're both a little advanced. So I said, you probably start with uh, investing for dummies where they explain what a stock is, what a what an option is and all the the very basics. Right. right. But the more you talk, the more, you know, I'm kind of agreeing with you that you're going to turn the kid off from investing if you say, OK, go find the cheapest company and he buys the three cheapest companies and those stocks go nowhere or down while the market keeps soaring and his buddies trading all these crazy meme stocks go up. Right. So as you were just talking there, I, I thought of the best book he should read. Charles Kindleberger. <laughs> Panic Manias. I forgot the name of the book. Pan- but he, Panics, but Manias the, and Crashes. Yes. Right. In the book, he reviews five or six of just the classic crashes, the Great Depression, the Tulip bubble, the uh, the railroad one, uh, you know, just just ones that are well known in history. Mm-hmm. And he kind of walks through them. And, and what you learn is that they are much more psychological events. They are not fundamental events. They are not they're not purely technical events. They are psychology. And and you know, I'm almost thinking that Psychology 101 books, a, right. a book on mani- you know manias and right. bubbles, uh, may be required reading. You know, what are what? Why do investors like to buy at high prices and they panic and sell when they're on sale? Mm-hmm. It's like every. It's the exact opposite of what we do as consumers. Right. Who goes into the store and it says marked up 20 percent? I'm like, I got to get six of those. <laughs> but when it's down 40 percent, you say, "Ooh, I, I don't want to. I'm going to sell you some of mine. I don't want uh, those anymore. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's the exact opposite. It's the exact opposite behavior. It's well, crazy. Yeah, it is. And, 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 you know, and, you know, it's interesting, too, because, you know, there's so much talk right now between Wall Street, Reddit, bets, and, you know, we've talked about that on the show before. And, and again, you flip on CNBC every day. They're talking about individual stocks. And, you know, if I was going to write a book on investing, um, you know, I would start the book out by saying you don't start out, you know, look, you don't start out riding a motorcycle, right? You start out riding a bicycle with training wheels. 
then if you want to ride a motorcycle, you gra- you learn how to ride a bike first, take the training wheels off, and then you graduate to a motorized bicycle at that point or a motorcycle, and you work your way up into it. And I think it's the same way that we should teach young people to invest. I get a lot of emails from parents saying, my kid wants to start investing in stocks. How do I get them started? Buy an ETF. Buy an S&P 500 ETF to start with or, or a mutual fund. doesn't matter. But learn how the market works as a whole, right? Learn how, how, how to ride the bike. What makes markets go up? What makes markets go down? What happens during these market transitions? And how do you respond to your S&P 500 fund going down 2 3 4 5%? Do you panic and sell or do you keep buying more of it? What's your, learn your behavior. Then once you do that, then you can start investing in individual stocks because now you understand that what affects the markets also drive stock prices, and then you can start to equate these things together. It's very hard, though, to get people to do that because investing in, a, in an index is boring. <laughs> you know, right. it doesn't go up 100% in a day, and, and it's not the meme stocks, and it's not, you know, I'm not going to drive a Lamborghini buying an S&P index fund. If I can trade options, I can make a lot more money. But that's the problem that we've done with the market. Robinhood is a terrible tool to give access to kids um, because it only teaches them to gamble. It doesn't teach them to invest. It doesn't teach them to save and, and, and be prudent with their money. It teaches them to gamble. And eventually this will end badly at some point. And an entire generation of people will lose a large chunk of money. They will stop investing in saving, which will hurt them longer term because they've been, they've been damaged by the markets. And, and this, Look, this isn't the first time. Happened in 2008, happened in 1999, happened in 1974, happened in 1929. People that invested in 1929 didn't come back to the markets ever. People that invested in 1974 didn't come back until 1990. People that invested in 2000 didn't come back until 2013 to 15. So, you know, you damage entire generations through these market crashes and you know, we're in that environment again, and we're creating it even worse this time because of all the leverage and the speculation. The outcome of this is going to be terrible for that younger generation. Right. And this is all they know. They, they want right. meme stocks. They want they don't no one looks. That, that was my article this week was in part it was on, you know, productivity and how we're throwing money away, investing in some of these stocks like AMC or Robinhood or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you look at AMC, it's a disaster. Forget forget COVID. It was a disaster before COVID. They had, of the last 10 years, only one year where they actually made more money than they're paying interest on their debt. Their Altman score, which measures how likely a company is to go bankrupt, has been well below the, has been well into, they're not going to last. <laughs> really, right. Well into the, uh, you're going bankrupt now, territory, yes. And now now throw in the fact that, that their, you know, their box office sales are at best a quarter of what they were. And that there's new streaming services that even if COVID goes completely away and everyone's like, we're going back to the movies, everything's grand. A lot of people won't because you can just watch them at home now when they come out right, right, right. from the uh, production company. Yep. But but it doesn't matter. It's a fun stock. Yeah. It, it goes up and down twenty percent a day. That's what they want. Yeah. Right. Uh, they don't they don't care what they're buying. Yeah. No. And look, they want the, they don't want training wheels. They want that <laughs> they want, that hypersonic bike. Yeah, exactly. And look, and this this ultimately ends very badly. And as we said before, it's not going to be surprising when it does. But again, this can, 
you know, last a lot longer than you expect. And, and that's the thing that we also have to navigate in the markets is that, you know, we do have to invest in stocks. We do have to maintain our positions and portfolios, et cetera, because markets are going up. And, you know, an important lesson that a lot of people have learned is that being out of the market can be just as damaging as suffering a correction. So if you miss the market upside and you miss the gains in the markets, that can be just as damaging to your long-term outcome financially as suffering a financial correction of 30, 40, 50%. So they have the same outcomes. You have to, to maintain your investments, but you have to manage the risk, which is what we talk about here a lot on the show is how to manage risk and how to navigate these markets. It's not, it's not fun. It's certainly challenging. And, you know, you don't get to participate in, you know, the AMCs and the Robin Hoods and those type of things by being prudent with your money. But you do survive the long game. And that's really the, the, the end result of this is, you know, you want to survive the war, not win the battle. And, you know, a lot of people are trying to win battles, but they're going to wind up losing the war. And that's the real problem long term financially for a generation. And I would say investing is not entertainment. If you want entertainment, go watch a mo movie. There's many things you can do. Right. If you want entertainment losing money, go gamble. But investing is not entertainment. It's, it's a way to accumulate your wealth so that you can retire. You can pass on the money to future generations, whatever your goal is. Yeah, well, now you, now you sound like a boomer. Sorry. <laughs> so, uh, that's what it is. I still haven't figured out how to answer the question. So uh, I'll, I'll maybe work on that email a little bit later. Psychology on 101. Uh, I think that's behavioral finance. Uh, right. So, all right, that wraps up the show for today. Get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Mike's article is out on the website now talking about AMC particularly and its impact on, on, on the markets as well as investors. It's on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. So, your questions, comments, email, simply click the Ask a Question button. We answer those every single day. Happy to help you. And if you're interested in our portfolios and things, check out our subscriber service, riapro.net. And uh, you can see all that there as well. Have a great day. We'll see you back here tomorrow, right here on the next Real Investment Show. See you then. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet. Sign up for the Real Investment Report now at realinvestmentadvice.com. It's a rich man's world.